This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. More than a year into the SARS-2 COVID-19 epidemic, a definitive understanding of its origin eludes us. Since being identified in December 2019, scientists have yet to find evidence of the path the virus took before infecting the first human. Owing to finding the first cases of COVID-19 in Wuhan, China, many scientists' first instincts were to hypothesize that the first infection came from a species jump from animal to human, the path of similar viruses such as SARS-1 and MERS. The conditions in the so-called wet markets in the region were thought to be ideal for such an interspecies jump. But confidence in this hypothesis elides another feature of Wuhan, the fact that it contains two biomedical research labs that experiment with the same types of virus that caused the epidemic. Despite this coincidence, early suggestions that SARS-2 may have come from a lab leak were condemned as baseless conspiracy theories as early as February and March 2020 in the medical journals Lancet in the UK and Nature Medicine here in the US. Nevertheless, a year and a half into a pandemic that has taken more than 3.4 million lives, scientists have yet to discover evidence of a natural source and are left to consider lab spillover as a possibility. My guest today is author and journalist, Nicholas Wade. He's written for Nature, Science, and for 30 years been staff writer for the Science Times section of the New York Times. Mr. Wade recently wrote an elaborate article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists titled Origin of COVID Following the Clues, in which he lays out a persuasive case that though proof has not been established for any origin of SARS-2, a serious case can be made that SARS-2 could have been created and leaked from a Wuhan lab. Perhaps as provocative as the idea that COVID-19 may have been man-made, Mr. Wade also shares in his piece the links between the labs in question and the U.S. underwriting of so-called gain-of-function viral research in China. Mr. Wade will share with us why now is the time to carefully examine the origins of the virus and what steps we need to take to ensure answers are found. When I return, I'll be joined by journalist Nicholas Wade. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Salvaggi. This is Hubwonk, and I'm now joined by New York Times science reporter and author Nicholas Wade. Welcome to Hubwonk, Mr. Wade. Thanks for having me. Now, before we talk about your recent piece, uh, The Origin of COVID Following the Clues, before we get into that piece, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background uh, as a writer and a reporter on science. How did you get here? How did I get into science? Well, I started writing about science on Nature magazine in London uh, many years ago, and then uh, I um, uh, joined Science magazine, which is our American competitor in Washington. And then I worked for the New York Times many years, um, from which I am now retired. I see. So I wanted to start there because I want to assure our listeners, uh, you're not the sort who trades in conspiracies for a living. You're a science reporter. I appreciate that. All right. Our time's limited. I want to jump right into the themes of your article, namely that uh, though there's no definitive proof either way as far as where um, this uh, global pandemic started, um, you do frame it in such that there are two possibilities, two, let's say, families of possibilities. Either it happened have, had a natural organic uh, origin or it may have come uh, from a lab. 
So let, let's start there and this bifurcated argument. Let's start first with why you see or where you see the weaknesses in, a, let's say, the animal origin or coming from a wet market. Why do you find that uh, explanation less persuasive? Well, I should say, that first of all, it's a very plausible explanation. Many previous viruses have jumped from animals to humans. And we've had two very recent cases <clears throat> of bat viruses that did just that, SARS-1 and something called uh, MERS. So, so that explanation was plausible. It's just that <clears throat> so far we have no direct evidence uh, for the many fingerprints that such virus, viruses leave in nature. And as each month goes by, the natural emergence theory seems less and less plausible. So uh, let's develop that a little bit um, further. You said, I believe, <laughs> fingerprints uh, that the uh, virus may have taken. Uh, and as you said, we've had viruses come from bats before. What are the missing fingerprints? You go into them in your article, um, uh, but at a high level, what are the fingerprints that are missing? Well, first of all, you can usually find the, the bat population from which the original virus came. Second, you, you can find the intermediate host animal that it and they jumped to first uh, before infecting humans. So in the case of the SARS-1 virus, it jumped to animals called civets, which are uh, frequently eaten in Chinese wet markets. And in the case of MERS, the intermediate host was a camel. So we have found no intermediate host yet for the SARS-2 virus. In other words, you'd expect to find an animal population still carrying this virus, uh, and we haven't found it. And thirdly, <clears throat> Hospitals have surveillance records in which they sort of test and keep the, the, the serum from people in the population. And you, you can see signs of past infections in these serology records. None of that have we found uh, for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Right? So the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, two closest, um, the, two, the two closest relatives of, of SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, live in caves in Yunnan in southern China. So if the virus was going to jump to people, you would expect it to jump to people living around the caves who are most exposed to it. Uh, but that isn't the case. It suddenly appears out of nowhere in Wuhan, which is 1,500 kilometers away. So that's roughly a thousand miles, and there's no uh, reported cases of a either an intermediate species or a bat infected uh, within a thousand miles, effectively, of Wuhan. Right, and that is very puzzling because if you imagine it sort of developing outside of Wuhan and uh, and eventually jumping to humans, then whoever was infected, firstly, he didn't infect anyone else in his family, and then you have to surmise that he sort of jumped on a train to Wuhan and didn't infect anyone on the train. And then suddenly he got off at Wuhan and the, and the epidemic starts. I mean, I guess it's possible. It just doesn't seem very plausible. Indeed, that's a, a fingerprint that doesn't exist or at least hasn't been found yet. If one were found, let's say we find an infected a civet or camel or some intermediate species, that would weaken your argument. But in this case, after a year and a half of looking, no such intermediate uh, infection has been found. Yes, and I, I wouldn't put it weak in my argument. I'm, I'm completely open to uh, new evidence coming along. And of course, that would change the situation entirely if we found some evidence in the natural environment for, for the emergence of SARS-CoV-2. That would change the picture entirely. 
Indeed. So then let's talk about the alternative uh, to a uh, species jump. And that's a what I think your article referred to as a spillover from a lab in Wuhan. Uh, because along with having wet markets, Wuhan also has a lab um, called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, your article goes into great detail as to why that is a more likely uh, prospect. Um, why don't you share with our listeners, um, first, the concept. Uh, it's, it's a technical concept, but I think it's important to our show. What is the concept of uh, gain of function, something that a virologist study or uh, what the Wuhan Institute was studying. What is gain of function in uh, virology experimentation? It's defined very simply as anything you do that enhances uh, the ability of a virus to to attack uh, humans or, or, or other animals. It's anything that enhances viral pathogenicity. And, and you might think, well, why would anyone want to do that? And the rationale that virologists give is that if they could get a, a, a jump or two ahead of nature to, if they could discover the sort of few tweaks you need to make in the virus's genome in order for it to become a human pathogen, then they could get ahead of any epidemic. They could predict and prevent it. So that is why in labs all over the world, you have these gain-of-function experiments in which they soup up natural viruses, natural animal viruses. So you take an animal virus that um, you, you mentioned in your article, um, uh, an experiment where they took a, a, a virus that is native to a mouse and, and change it so that it could infect cats uh, to the chagrin of cats everywhere and to the light of, uh, of mice everywhere. Well, that's right, but it was a very interesting experiment because these spike proteins determine exactly what species can be the virus's target. And, and so it shows that by swapping out the spike virus from, uh, from a, a cat coronavirus and putting it into re replacing the spike virus in a, a mouse coronavirus with the cat version, then you change the proclivity of the virus from mice to cats. And, and of course, that has great bearing for doing the same with putting in spike proteins that will make the coronavirus more interested in attacking human cells. So, so we're, we're creating, we're starting with, say, natural viruses, and we're modifying them to be more virulent, more deadly, more easily spread, so as to have an opportunity to uh, understand it and perhaps create a vaccine before it infects everyone. So this is right. the logic. Okay. Yes. Now, within uh, these labs, you mentioned levels of security, uh, biolab safety levels, one through four. Can you say more about how, let's say, um, within a, 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 a lab, you would have different levels of security? Okay, so these uh, these four internationally recognized levels, the highest called um, BSL-4, is, is used for handling the most deadly pathogens like um, the Ebola virus. And for, for BSL-4, you have to sort of wear a space suit and do everything in sort of sealed units, uh, and it's sort of very safe and secure, but it's also a pain in the neck. Virologists don't really like to do anything in BSL-4 that they could do in, in, in lower safety conditions. So now the rules for working with coronavirus are that if you're working with any with either of the two coronaviruses we know that already cause pandemics, the SARS-1 and the MERS, you must do that in, in BSL-3. But if you're working with any other coronavirus, you can do that just in BSL-2. Now that, that seem, might seem to some a little illogical because what if without knowing it you created a new pathogen then you'd be in too low a safety level to contain it. Be that as it may, 
Dr. Xi at the Wuhan Institute was doing all almost her experiments in uh, BSL-2 and some in BSL-3. She's, she said that publicly. Uh, and now BSL-2, you don't really have to do very much. You put up a, a sort of biohazard sign on the door. You wear sort of a coat and gloves. And, and that's about it. So it sort of works in a general way against ordinary viruses, but it's uh, by no means foolproof. You mentioned in your uh, article something about the uh, BLS2 being akin to the the safety level of a dentist's office. Right. Um, so in, it, it, that would, in a sense, be your likely explanation of how uh, a deadly virus would be, let's say, mishandled or perhaps be more likely to escape from a lab. Um, do uh, viruses escape from labs? Is this uh, the stuff of, of science fiction or, or, or scary movies, or do uh, uh, deadly viruses escape from labs routinely? Uh, they do escape from labs. Uh, I'm not quite sure if you could say routinely, because um, it's not that often, but it certainly, uh, you know, at least once a year, there are there have been reports of bad viruses escaping from high security labs. Even the sort of smallpox virus has escaped from labs and caused several deaths uh, uh, many years ago in England. The SARS-1 virus is very interesting. That has escaped six times in the few years we've had it. It's a real escape artist. And it has escaped four times alone from the Beijing Institute of Virology. I see. So now we have some concerns that uh, Wuhan has, let's say, a, uh, they're doing experiments in a, uh, a safety level of two when perhaps a higher level would be more appropriate. We have a history of uh, viruses escaping from Chinese labs uh, in Beijing. Um, so that you know, the picture starts to come into more focus. Um, it seems like high risk stuff. Who, um, who funds these kinds of uh, research activities? Well, this particular research activity at, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology uh, had funding from the National Institutes of Health. Uh, Dr. Xi had other sources of funding as well, but, but certainly she was uh, doing work on uh, coronaviruses and giving them gain-of-function activities based on a grant she had from the NIH. So it's our own government that was doing the research on gain-of-function in uh, coronaviruses in, in Wuhan. Um, the, the plot thickens. Um, so let, let's develop that a little bit more and say, why would we um, invest in a Wuhan lab? Uh, I believe your article covered some uh, concerns that our own investigators had about that lab uh, being uh, short-staffed on skilled technicians and investigators. Um, was there concern about the kind of work that was being done? Again, if it's funded by the NIH, it's funded by the American taxpayer. Was there concern about the research being done there before the global pandemic? This was a, a, a program they were funding in light of their very legitimate interest in coronaviruses and trying to prevent future pandemics. Um, so the NIH was not handling the grant directly. They, they funded something called the EcoHealth Alliance in New York, which in turn subcontracted to Dr. Xi. Uh, so no one that we know of was expressing concern about what Dr. Xi was doing um, because she was following the international rules laid down by virologists for, for how to handle coronaviruses. So as long as she was following those rules, and I don't think anyone had any evidence otherwise, no one, I guess, at, at EcoHealth Alliance or 
behind them the National Institutes of Health had any reason to express concern. That said, concern was expressed from a, a completely different angle, which was uh, we had inspectors at our uh, embassy in Beijing who went to inspect the P4, the BSL-4 lab, uh, which was being constructed uh, by the French, as it happens, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, in a sense, all this is irrelevant because Dr. Xi didn't do any of her experiments in, in the BSL-4 lab. But that aside, the inspectors were uh, very concerned about the level of safety, the way the lab was being run. And they wrote back to the State Department, I think this was in 2017 and 18, they wrote back uh, two reports saying that this, the, the safety conditions at this BSL-4 lab are inadequate. I see. Okay. Um, now we've got uh, now we're a year and a half into a global pandemic, one that uh, uh, the latest figures, I think, are 163 million cases and 3.4 million deaths. Um, but when we first started uh, this this journey back in, it was as early as February, it was a, an article in the or a letter in the Lancet um, uh, discussing the likely origin of this virus. And it came out very definitively to say it could not have come from a lab. It must have come from a, an animal. Can you say more about uh, uh, the science or the uh, opinion behind that letter and why it, it sort of here we are um, a year later, still essentially accepting that thesis as, as gospel? Uh, yes, there were two letters, and this is uh, one of them, which were very influential in setting the climate of public opinion that has prevailed uh, uh, ever, ever since. And this first letter in The Lancet said it's ridiculous to think that the virus could have escaped from the lab. That's a conspiracy theory. Please uh, stand behind our Chinese colleagues in fighting this dread disease. Now, it basically turned out that this letter had been organized and drafted by uh, Dr. Peter Daszak, who is the president of the EcoHealth Alliance, which was funding the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So obviously, if the virus had escaped from the lab, people would be asking questions of Dr. Daszak, and he might well be at fault. You might think that such an acute conflict of interest would have been declared to the readers of The Lancet, but it was not. In fact, to the contrary, the letter ends, we declare no conflict of interest. So the person who essentially authored the letter, and I think in your piece, I think you uh, mentioned that uh, Dr. Daszak actually had commented that he wanted his letter to be not identifiable as coming from any one organization or person, with, it seems like with the express intent, intent of ensuring that it didn't appear to have a conflict of interest. Why would it be then that, let's say, that he, um, his organization may have presented one letter, why would um, other virologists, uh, I'm sure there are many in there in the world, why would they close ranks around this particular position, given uh, they're probably the most familiar with the dangers of uh, virology experimentation as anyone? Why, why would they rule out the scientific possibility that it could have come from a lab? Well, I think, I think if you consider the consequences of the virus uh, having escaped from that lab, if indeed that's what, is, what happened, virologists would certainly anticipate a certain amount of blowback from the public, not to say extreme anger. So they weren't particularly interested in having people look into this possibility. Now, I don't think they did anything actively to cover it up. It's just that when the Lancet letter came out and a second letter 
letter in Nature Medicine from five virologists, which had many uh, defects. The virologists of the world, none of them stepped forward to say, well, we don't really agree with this. We think landscape is an obvious logical possibility that should be looked into. They were all silent. Uh, again, now we're going into the realm of speculation, but why would uh, would virologists be silent about uh, uh, sort of informing the public as to a, a plausible explanation for a global pandemic? Well, I think they just made a wrong choice here, because if you look at what other scientists have done in, in recent times when they've come across dangerous techniques, they have called public attention to the danger of these techniques. They have set high uh, safety levels, which would sort of later relax when the dangers seem uh, not so profound. This has happened on at least three occasions in various different branches of biology. Now, the virologists, unfortunately, did not take that route. In doing these gain-of-function research, they, they just decided among themselves and with the agreement of government officials that this was the way they should go. So they don't have the sort of backing of public understanding and support that other branches of, of biology have uh, uh, achieved. I know in one sort of regulation, governments are poking into one's affairs if one can avoid it. But in this particular case, you know, virologists just wanted to sort of live a happy life and not have the government traipsing around their labs and saying, you should be you're wearing spacesuits here and working in BSL-4 level conditions. So it's definitely an inconvenience to do to do it uh, more safely, uh, but now we have the the benefit of hindsight and a and a global pandemic. Um, do you think the calculus is changing? I, I want to back up a little bit and say I, I had thought and I had read in, in preparation for this this conversation that um, uh, gain of function uh, research uh, has been deemed uh, too risky. And and pra- uh, if I've got my facts wrong, I uh, forgive me. I had thought it had been banned in two thousand seventeen. Um, is that, do I have it wrong or is it banned in, in some cases and not others? Where are we now? What, what, is, the, what is the constraint on uh, viral uh, experimentation around this? Can we, can we continue to, uh, to create viruses like, uh, or if it is created, like SARS-2? Oh, this is a very important question. And, and we, we don't yet know the full answer, but I can tell you what has happened up, up to now. Firstly, because of the obvious danger of this research, the government imposed a moratorium on funding that lasted from 2014 to 2017. So it didn't stop any experiments underway at the time, but it, it said we won't fund any new ones during this period while we try and reassess the situation. So in 2017, the moratorium was halted, but it didn't vanish. It was replaced by a sort of reporting system, which required any government agency funding research of possible danger to report the research to the reporting system, I guess, so that others could review it. So that is the sort of regulatory framework we have. It's it's sort of meant to sort of keep track of these experiments and sort of intervene as appropriate. Now, what is very puzzling, and we don't really know the answer yet, is why the NIH didn't apparently cooperate with with either sort of leg of this this regulatory system. They didn't they didn't seem to report funding the Wuhan Institute of Virology during the moratorium, which they were doing. They didn't ask for an exemption so far as we know, which they could have done. They didn't report the continuing experiments to the reporting system. 
And, and so it was very positive when, when um, Dr. Fauci, the head of the NIAID, said recently, the NIH did not support any gain of function research at the WIV. So I think that left a lot of people scratching their heads because the, sort of, the descriptions of the research in the, in the NIH grant abstracts seem clearly to point to gain of function. Now, one possibility is the EcoHealth Alliance. Maybe I'm getting into more sort of detail than you really want, but, uh, but I just have one more thing to say. The EcoHealth Alliance said recently, well, gain of function only applies when you are taking a human virus, a known human pathogenic virus, and you are making that uh, more infectious. It doesn't apply when you're just trying to soup up an animal virus like these bat viruses. Well, if that's the... If that is the NIH's interpretation, uh, that's very interesting. It would explain Dr. Fauci's statement, except that it does not seem to be supported in the regulatory language, which says gain of function is anything that improves a pathogen's ability to, to infect. I want to uh, drill down a little bit more on this and say, okay, if if this is regulated and 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 the regulations have been visited as recently as 2014 and 2017, uh, and it, presumably uh, Wuhan was governed by these same regulations, shouldn't we be able to examine the work that they were doing there? Shouldn't we be able to walk in? The NIH is one of the uh, benefactors of the uh, 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 research and say, what have you been doing here? Um, what does the mo what do the viruses you've been working on most recently look like and compare those to the viruses that have infected you know planet earth why isn't that just uh, as easy as crossing the street well that's an excellent point so there are two ways two points to look at it i mean the first is from the chinese side the, the chinese have just clamped down they have sealed all records from the wiv uh, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They have <clears throat> shut down all the um, bat coronavirus databases in which information is recorded. They won't tell us what viruses Dr. Xi was working on, what experiments she was doing. There is nothing from that end. But another possibility is that Dr. Xi, after all, was a subgrantee of Dr. Dashak at the EcoHealth Alliance. So presumably she kept him up to date on what she was doing since he was giving all this money, she presumably was filing some regular reports saying we're doing X, Y, and Z. So it would be very nice if the EcoHealth Alliance would kindly tell us exactly what it knows about Wuhan Institute of Virology. And so far, it has not done so. So is Dr. Daszak an American or, uh, you know, it, is, it seems he's funded by uh, the United States government uh, or at least contracted by the United States government. Uh, as you say, his his, his charge uh, was doing the work. It may have been closed in China, but certainly, as you say, he should be informed. Uh, can't that information, uh, can he be compelled to uh, release that? I mean, he, he's not in China. He, he's here. Uh, well, I wish I knew the, uh, uh, the answer to that question. I mean, he has the grant proposals, which uh, that's the, the full-length document from which the abstracts are drawn. Now, these grant proposals are usually um, confidential because they you know, explain all the scientists' sort of techniques and, and intellectual work uh, for the research he proposes to do. So those grant proposals have not been made public, um, and perhaps they should be. The NIH has not required Dr. Dashak, so far as we know, to tell us everything that he knows. 
Uh, and I think the reason for this is because so far the, the Congress has not has not been interested enough in this issue to try and get to the bottom of it. I mean, you would think, as you've just laid out, that the origin of this virus has, has disrupted the lives of so many people and so and has killed so many people would be of interest to the party that controls the Congress, whatever whatever one happens to be right now. So, but so far, they, no one's sort of, they haven't, best, I think they're still in the old mindset that this can't be allowed to escape. It must be natural emergence. And the, the sort of, we, the mental wheels are sort of changing, very, turning very slowly. And so far, no one has come around to saying, Dr. Dasek, tell, you, tell us what you know. I think the, the dam is starting to break. I think it's a, a year and a half into it. And I think from my own perspective, I think uh, these kinds of uh, concerns when we're in the middle of a pandemic were largely uh, academic because it didn't matter where it came from. It was just as deadly re- regardless. Right. Uh, but now it, now it does matter, I think. But I, rather than uh, hearing from me, why is it so important to definitively know the origin of this virus? Th- does it matter where it came from? Well, I think it matters a great a, d- a deal because if we want to prevent this happening again, we need to know how it happened the first time. In- indeed, indeed. Uh, so our our uh, audience, we're coming to the end of our time together, and uh, I want to ask one one last question. You can answer it any way you like. Our our listeners like to be constructive uh, and and do something and try to help make the world a little better place. Uh, if they're listening and they're uh, uh, persuaded by your arguments uh, that at least uh, regardless of their conclusions, more uh, research needs to be done into the origin of uh, SARS-2, the the virus that causes COVID-19. What could uh, Americans listening to this uh, podcast do? Uh, Would they write their congressman and tell them they they want action? Uh, What would you recommend happens? I think the most useful thing would be to to put pressure on the Chinese to, to provide the information which the world needs the information that is at present locked up in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So for that to happen, so far the Chinese had a free ride because most of the US media and the Congress is going along with the idea that this couldn't possibly be allowed to escape. But as soon as people start to, to change their mind, and I think it's turning, uh, as soon as, as people in this country and elsewhere say China, the balance of of evidence that we have so far points to lab escape and the ball is in your court to quit this stonewalling and tell us what really happened. I think that kind of pressure might persuade the Chinese to come forward. And if if they did that, and you can see there's the sort of makings of a face-saving formula. Um, true, the Chinese let this virus escape, if that's what happened, but also the US was funding the research at Wuhan, so sort of both sides could you know, pick up a little bit of the blame and they could cooperate in trying to get to the bottom of whatever did indeed happen. Indeed, so your conclusion is there's, if, if it is found to have been an escape from a, from a lab in Wuhan, there's so much culpability, there's so much, so many fingerprints, so, so much blame uh, that they could uh, join hands and say, look, we're all in this together, we, we've made a mistake, uh, let's, let's make sure it never happens again. Is, is that a fair way to summarize your um, uh, optimistic uh, future path? Yes, as long as we keep the lawyers out of it and we don't drown <laughs> in the sea of tort suits, we might get to the truth. Well, that's a wonderful way to end end our, our time together. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Wade. Your, your uh, insight, your article is, is terrific. I'll say for our listeners, it's the origin of COVID following the clues. 
Uh, I hope you'll have a follow-up um, uh, piece if you find new information that uh, persuades you more strongly uh, uh, in, in one direction or the other. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like to help support us, there are several ways to do that. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your local podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, you can offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. And naturally, it's always welcome if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have suggestions or comments or ideas for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.